Now, for the show that brings combat sports stories to life from the great state of Ohio, this is Forged in Ohio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of Forged in Ohio. My name is Jake Murray, and I'm the host of this podcast. And today I'm joined by a pretty unique figure in combat sports. He served in the military, had his first MMA fight in 2007, and he recently retired from the sport just over two weeks ago. He's still an athlete in many ways, and he's still going to be involved in the sport of MMA post-retirement. We're going to talk about all that and more in today's episode. It's my pleasure to welcome Norm the Jackhammer Carrero to the podcast. Thanks for coming in studio, Norm, and welcome to Forge in Ohio. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming in, uh, especially making the trip into the studio here. I usually like to kick off interviews on Forge in Ohio with the athlete's backstory and how they got into the sport. You're more experienced, though, and credentialed than other fighters I've had on. So I really just want to dive right in and start with your last fight against Kyle Crum at Cage Thunder 19 on February 18th. You talked before the fight about how you were prepared to retire if you lost or turn pro, but potentially never fight again if you won. Why now? Why choose to retire in what was your 14th amateur MMA fight? I've actually had this conversation quite a few times with some members from our gym and my coach and especially my wife. And I said, you know, if the, uh, if the opportunity is right, maybe I'll take another fight. I need to get to a different weight class, smaller weight class. You know, the circumstances have to be right. But I feel like I am the best fighter I've ever been at this age. And unfortunately, father time is always undefeated. And... uh I'm now choosing to retire because with the medical situation in Ohio, with the Ohio Athletic Commission, there are a lot of hoops medically that I'm going to have to jump through now. My license expired this, uh, actually March 22nd, I believe, is when my uh, yearly license uh, expires. And then now I'm going to have to do chest x-rays, brain scans and MRIs and stress tests and eye exams. It's just a whole medical disaster with the Ohio Athletic Commission when you turn 35 and you try to compete in the sport. Um, that being said, my body is also old. Um, doing what I've done for as long as I've done it in multiple sports, uh, knee problems, back problems. Uh, just to give you an idea, going into my last fight against Kyle, I um, have carpal tunnel in both my wrists. I have arthritis in my right hand. I've got tendonitis in both my elbows. I've got bursitis in my left shoulder. Uh, currently, I have a pinched nerve in my neck. I'm slowly losing strength in my right arm, and I'm actually actively seeing my doctor for that. We're, we're treating that as of recent. I've got a crazy amount of scar tissue around my eyes. As you saw when I fought him, I took a headbutt in the one, and I took a, a, a left hook in the other, and immediately started bleeding. The wind blows the right way my eyes will start to bleed, which is why I was so irritated when the doctor stopped the fight over that, that small cut over my eyebrow. But over the course of my 14 fights, I have had four or five eye injuries, um, a possible de uh, detached retina at one point. Thankfully, when uh, we did the medical for that, it wasn't. But for the longest time, I was seeing flashes out of the corner of my eyes. Um, I couldn't watch TV without getting you know blackouts in, in, in my eyes. And, and it's just eye issues in general. You know, and I had PRK when I was in the military, which is eye corrective surgery. It's not LASIK, it's just a different form of eye surgery. And I was allowed to fight and compete with that eye surgery. But having that done and then having as many eye problems as I had amongst all the medical, other medical conditions, it was time. 
It really was. And, and yeah, it was nothing with, oh, if I lose to Kyle, I'm going to retire. No, it, it was, this is my last fight. It's a good fight. It's in Akron. The story wrote itself. I made my debut at that venue. Uh, Jay Digman was my ring announcer. Almost, but 16 years on the dot, I believe. Almost to the day I made my debut. So it was just the story wrote itself, and it was time to go. Yeah, I was in attendance that night. I saw how emotional you were after the fight and even got to talk to you beforehand, like I said, and were, was able to see your emotions before the fight. But you mentioned all the, the things going on with your body. If it weren't for all those hoops with the commission, would you still want to fight, even with all those injuries and, and things going on? Would you still have that fire inside of you to keep on going in the sport? I, I still have the fire in me right now. I want to go out and I want to take a fight next month. I um, am constantly on social media and I'm constantly talking to promotions and matchmakers who are offering me fights. I'm seeing dropouts, like late edition dropouts in uh, surrounding states that you know are my weight class. And I go, ooh, oh man, I, my license is still good. Yeah. I'm not under suspension because it was, you know, my last fight was... Uh, Technically, it was a TKO, but it wasn't in the first round. And um, I had no suspension slip, no medicals to clear, nothing like that. It was just uh, so I look at it and I go, man, I want to fight now. I, I can get one more in. Just I won't tell anybody, you know. And I mean, almost immediately after I announced my retirement, I was already at my house laying in bed that same night going, man, did I make the right choice? Mm. You know, should I retire? I am the best I have ever been. If I had the work ethic that I have right now when I was 22, 18, 19, 20, I, I would have gone so much further in the sport. I would have gone so far. But unfortunately, uh, I didn't get that surge of work ethic and determination and passion until my early 30s. So is it hard saying no to those other fight offers, whether that be in-state or even in surrounding states with those dropouts and things like that? Oh, yeah, it's, it stings, especially when you, you feel that you can win the fight. You're like, oh, man, just, just one more. I'm not going to get hurt. You know, you just you really want to get in there, and it, it does sting. It, I guess it'll always sting. I'll be 50 years old, and it'll still bug me, you know, because it's one of those things you look back on, especially with the sport of MMA. When you get older, everyone, every fighter will have this, especially if they had ambition of going to the UFC or to a higher promotion and turning pro and being a successful per, uh, professional mixed martial artist, you know, you, uh, you look back when you get older and you just wonder if you did enough in your career. You know, unfortunately for me, I always wanted the GoPro and that was what I was talking to you about where I was like, yeah, if I lose, I'm retiring, I think, but if I win, I might, you know, and then I'm going to announce my professional debut, but I may never make it. I may never actually fight pro, but I will get my card one day just to kind of cross off my bucket list. But And I and who knows? Like I said, if the circumstances are right, the conditions are right, yeah, I might I might uh, make my pro debut in a in a different state, you know, Alabama, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, you know, Michigan. You know, I can go pro in those states easy. Well, that's really interesting, Norm. And you mentioned the the night of the retirement. You kind of questioned it when you were laying down for bed two weeks or so later. Are you still questioning it, or are you more firm in that decision? No, I'm st I still question it. I think I'll question it for a while. Like I just said, like I still, in my mindset, I'm still not all the way there, and I haven't accepted it. That's why I'm like, yeah, I could probably take another fight if it's right. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's always going to be like that. I'm always going to have the itch until I'm too old. You know, once I get to that 40, 41, 42-year mark, I think I can – safely say okay 
you know, I'm going to put this over here. I'm not going to fight anymore. And it's funny because, like, Sean Dinnan, the guy that I fought December 3rd of last year, he's 41, you know, and, and he's he's still trying to go. And he, and he is trying to, you know, finally get that last amateur fight under his belt so he can go pro. And he doesn't even really want to do much pro. He just wants to go pro, maybe take a fight or two, and then transition to coaching. You know, because at that age, how at my age, I'm not marketable, man. Like the UFC, and they're not going to invest millions of dollars into a 35, almost 36-year-old fighter, even if I did go on a tear. I mean, we're talking like I'd have to go 5-6-0 and 0 as a pro, maybe get on a contender series. Think about how many the average uh, amount of fights a, a fighter will get in a year. I mean, amateur, if you're active, you can get seven, eight fights in that year. If you're healthy professionally, you kind of cut that number in half when you're first starting out until you get to a point where you're only fighting once or twice a year. You know, so you, yeah. you think I go pro right now and I go on a tear at my age, say five fights in that year. I win all of them. And now I'm going to try to get the UFC to market an old man. It's not going to happen. And you have to be realistic with yourself. But I'm okay with knowing that I'm never going to go to the UFC or Bellator or anything like that. I just always wanted to be a local professional. You know, I wanted to be relevant in my community as a professional fighter. I wanted people to kind of look at me and go, oh, that's ah, Norm, man. Yeah, he was, he was a pro, dude. He was a professional MMA fighter, man. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to look at someone and be like, yeah, man, I'm an amateur MMA fighter. 16 years later, you know, right. a lot of my friends who started mixed martial arts years after me, they went pro. Shout out to guys like Ryan Arce and Brandon Poindexter, BP, Mario McHale, you know, Super Mario, uh, you, a lot of Isaiah, the late Isaiah Chapman, who like I helped get into the sport uh, and, and he graduated high school two years after I had already been fighting. And then he went on a 12 and one uh, amateur record and then went as far as fighting a patchy mix in Bellator mm. for you know uh, and that was in 2020 with a professional nine and three record so you know you look at these guys have already gone pro and half the time that I've been fighting so you know it was always something I wanted to cross off my bucket list but that itch will always be there as a competitor you say you wanted to reach that status of being that local legend guy from my perspective, I think you've reached it. But from your own, do you think you've reached that local legend status in your career? I don't. And it, it's really? not me being negative or anything. I just kind of look at it. Um, I look at it differently than a lot of people. You know, when I think of local legends, I think of guys like like Wolverine, Cody Stevens, you know, a lot of uh, the, the John Hawks. I would say Stipe, but he's more, I mean, he made it, you know. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, like all the uh, the KO Butlers of the world, you know those guys, uh, Lucas Mass, the guy, you know the, these these types of fighters that you know Andrew Law. That I guess Andrew Law from Route 250 would be probably one of my uh, perfect examples as local legend. He he never went to the stage like the the show. I guess you can say in mixed martial arts, and and unfortunately that was because of an injury that he had suffered due to, to I believe, an illegal knee um, in the fight that had caused damage to his uh, to his brain, his skull. And but he's he's a hell of a fighter, and he's got a he's got a decent record, you know, professionally with over I, I want to say he's got like round twelve fights, but he's that's he's. He's around locally, you know, he trains fighters, those fighters fight on our shows, so we see them, 
You know, he's active on social media. You know, we're always watching his old fights or going through his old fights. But yeah, he he has never he hasn't made it to the UFC. He hasn't made it to Bellator. You know, and I look at myself and I go, man, I'm just an amateur fighter with 14 fights with a seven and seven record. I'm a 500 fighter. To me, that's not local legend status. I'm more of a mentor in the sport more than anything. When people, you know, look at me or they hear my name, they're just like, uh, oh, it's Norm, man. It's Jackhammer. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, I think there's something to be said about that, and you're certainly honest with yourself, but I think you're almost uh, too hard on yourself in that way. And also what you do post-retirement also has a huge role in you becoming a, a legend locally in the sport of MMA. I do want to circle back, though, to that fight against Kyle Crum, because we also talked before the fight, and you said the nerves were kind of getting to you a little bit. Nervous because uh, you weren't worried about winning or losing, but because it could have been your last time competing in MMA, which it was. Tell me more about the emotions leading up to that fight and making the walk for the final time. Yeah, it was... Uh... Talking to my coach, warming up in the back, and and yeah, I actually, I I'm and usually I keep that kind of stuff to myself, but I just looked at him and I said, Brian, I said I'm nervous, man. Mm. And he just looked at me. He's like, Yeah, just have fun, you know. And he started telling me what I tell our younger fighters. Ah, it's advanced sparring. Yeah, the only difference is there's a crowd here, man. Once that cage door shuts, you know, all the anxiety and and emotion is going to go away just like it always does just like it did but yeah leading up to it it um yeah the the nerves didn't really play anything as far as like the how the outcome of the fight went but yeah it it definitely has been the most nervous that I've ever been in a fight or be sorry before a fight and it felt amazing making that walk you know for the last time being able to hit a crowd I mean I I'm more popular in the sport now than I was you know 10 years ago 15 years ago so you know the side-by-side -side difference of walking out for the first time and walking out for the last time, it was what I wanted. You know, the, the, the cheers from the crowd, the hugs afterwards, the, uh, the outreach the, on social media after I had announced my retirement, it was, it was there. It was good. I could have went out differently in the sport. You know, I could have just went out like a lot of other guys, just silent, quiet. Who the hell's that guy, you know? And I went out on my shield, and and with an with a little bit of a name. I've had a I had opponents that I fought back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and seven, who reached out to me and was like, "Hey man, I'm proud of you, wow. you know, for lacing them back up and getting out there one more time. Like I'm proud of you." Good and a guy, you know, guys that I fought, guys who have beaten me, guys who retired way before I did, you know. And now they they reached out and then, you know, it felt nice. So. Yeah, I was going to ask about the emotions after the fight because I know you were nervous a little bit going into it, but I could only imagine what the emotions were like afterwards. You had that incredible post-fight interview in, in the cage as well, gave that incredible retirement speech. I wanted to ask, you know, who did reach out? You mentioned those fighters, but did anybody reach out that you were unexpecting and but you were happy to hear from those people? I was definitely not expecting for you know past fighters and, and guys that I've competed with 15 years ago to reach out I think that was the biggest surprise to me a lot of family members and everything like that I was kind of like I figured you know I was gonna get the uh, oh thank god you're done with this crap you know I, I was gonna get that a little bit from some of my family members and oh I'm, your grandmother's happy for you she's just you know she's just happy it's finally over that kind of thing because every time after every single fight my grandmother go are you done yet are you done yet are you done yet it's like 
no, Grandma, we're not done yet. I'm going to be done for a while. But uh, now nah, everyone on, on my social media that I expected to reach out reached out. And, um, you know, it was, it was amazing. I had matchmakers, other matchmakers, um, guys from Pennsylvania that had watched me were like, hey, man, congratulations on a good career. A lot of unexpected people. Yeah, that's incredible. I want to kind of ask you about Kyle Crum. Of course, he was your last opponent. You had fought him before, and you injured a, one of your fingers going into that fight. You get the rematch, and then ends with that TKO doctor stoppage. I know there was kind of a rivalry there, a little bit of bad blood. Talk to me about Kyle Crum and I guess that challenge going into that fight. I'm going to be completely honest. Like, there wasn't any bad blood going into the fight. The bad blood honestly started after the fight. I mean, I think that's just a lot of Kyle's ego and how he is as a person outside of the cage. You know, even after the fight, I tried to offer him some advice, and I, was, and I, and I told him straight up, I said, hey, you have so much potential. You're six foot four. you're long, you're strong, you have leverage. You know, you're built for this sport. You are naturally athletic. You can go a long way in this sport, but he is, he's just not a coachable guy. And that's not necessarily me speculating on it or anything. That is coaches. I can read you messages from guys, from coaches locally. I won't name names or anything publicly, but I have messages of guys that have reached out and was like, hey, man, yeah, this dude is just not coachable. I mean, I I, I used to train with his old gym. I've talked to his coaches. I've talked to his sparring partners, his training guys, guys who barely knew him, guys who knew him well. And they all said the same thing, you know, and... You know, he's even gone as far on social media as to call me out and say that, like, oh, you know, I gave you your rematch after you know the finger injury, the freak accident with the finger injury. And I'm like, dude, you're the one who asked for the fight. Mm-hmm. I never really wanted the rematch. I never really cared. I have a very strict rule about not fighting the same guy amateur twice. But I, you know, he was willing to burn the bridge with his fight team and go to another team to train specifically just to fight me. He wanted the rematch. Maybe he felt that he had something to prove because he, you know, people were saying they had a paper win the first time he fought. I, I honestly don't know. A lot of the bad blood, though, came after the fight. And that was more of just crap talking. And, and, you know, I'm maybe biased. I've watched the video. I've watched my fight quite a quite a few times. And I feel like I was winning 2-0, at least going into the third round. At worst, tied 1-1. And I wanted the opportunity to finish the fight. And uh, maybe I just didn't like the way he celebrated after, right. you know, because it's congratulations for the second time in a row. You got a victory over a doctor stoppage. And the shot that you hit me with was a headbutt. It wasn't even an actual punch. It was a headbutt. And um, and honestly, I might have been the reason for the headbutt because I was dropping my head and I was putting my head into his chest. It could have been my fault, you know, hitting my eye in his chin or something like that. And, uh, you know, to celebrate the way that he did and then to get on social media and talk crap saying that he, you know, he saved my life. I was bloodied and battered and bruised or whatever the hell he said and and all that stuff, which for those posts were later removed. But I screenshotted them and I posted them because that's what I do. (laughs) But uh, I don't want to talk. I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time talking about Kyle. Um at the end of the day, the kid's got a lot of potential. He's just too egotistical to really do anything special in the sport. 
we'll see if he actually fights Nick Nash at 205 for the title because that fight's probably not going to go in Kyle's way. I've trained mm-hmm. with Nick. He's trained with Nick. He knows. Yeah, nasty Nick Nash, a guy I've formerly had on Forge in Ohio, know him very well. Yeah, I thought it was kind of weird him celebrating the way he did after that fight, especially with the method of victory that he had. And he was pumping up the crowd, just celebrating too much for a win that, like you said, he shouldn't have really, I don't know, celebrated that way. Because if you were up 2-0 going into that third round, what was there to celebrate? And if you had caused that clash of heads or the headbutt to cause the cut, uh, of course, he shouldn't really celebrate that either. In the grand scheme of things, though, were you happy with your performance that night before, of course, the fight was stopped? Were you happy with that retirement performance there at Cage Thunder 19? Oh, yeah. I went back and I watched that fight. My head movement was great. My boxing was awesome to me. I mean, compared to how I used to fight. If you look at my debut fight, it was just windmill arms. You know, I had no technique. I had no style. It was just get in there and brawl. So to kind of compare and, and look at some of my past fights and, and see how I was doing now the footwork the feints the head movement the boxing you know I was I would I had his, I had his punches I was uh I was ducking under and shooting in for takedowns off of his uh his right hand off of his left jabs my wrestling was on point I was able to get multiple takedowns in the fight as well uh, my body shots were insane I mean you could hear uh Alex doing the commentary saying him and Brandon were saying, yo, we can hear these body shots from here. You know, they were hard shots. I I mean, I can hear him gasping for air every single shot I landed. I was happy with the performance. I just, you know, unfortunately kind of proved one of my points why I'm retiring with, you know, medically is, is these BS cuts that I get over my eyes every fight that I do. You know, I always get an eye injury or a cut or something, and it, they just bleed. It just bleeds. Mm-hmm. And you can see the pictures that are now posted on social media of that fight. And, and my eyes are wide open. The blood looks like I'm wearing blood mascara, but there's nothing in my eye. My vision was never obstructed. You know, the cut wasn't even that bad. It just looked bad because there was blood. There was 11 seconds left in that in the second round. And uh, if you watch the video, you can see Frank Jarek, the commissioner, pointing to the referee and pointing to his eye. And uh, I wish that they would have let me get to like the intermit, like uh, the in between rounds, so my my coach can come in, wipe it down, vaseline it up, and show the doctor like, hey, this we're good. And they probably would have let the fight continue. But unfortunately, they stopped it with 11 seconds in the second round. Didn't give my coach an opportunity to give any Vaseline or wipe me down. And he just said, hey, man, this is going to get bad if, you know, if I let you continue. I disagree just because this is my 14th fight, my last fight. And that's what I told the doc. I said, hey, man, let me go out on my shield tonight. I said, this is, this is it for me. I was like, I just want you to know this is it. And uh, he just wasn't having it. You know, and, and it doesn't surprise me that doctor, that doctor specifically has stopped three of my fights. He oh. stopped my first one in 2007, ironically, for an eye injury. Do you harp on those 11 seconds? Like, do you let that haunt you or do you think about that often? No, no. If I would have, uh, if it would have been 11 seconds in the third round and I was winning all three rounds and then I got knocked out, 
then yeah, maybe I'd, right. I'd kind of harp on those 11 seconds. But no, the 11 seconds doesn't bother me at all. I don't think about it at all. Literally doesn't have anything to do with my mental status at all when it, when it comes to that. That's just an example that I use for like, hey, if they would have gave me that 11 seconds, I, I think that uh, I could have got cleaned up and changed the doctor's mind. But who knows? He might not, you know, he might have still stopped the fight. But Are you content knowing that the last fight you competed in MMA resulted in a loss by doctor stoppage in the way that it took place? Uh, going out on a loss doesn't necessarily bother me. I mean, statistically speaking, most guys who have a retirement fight go out on a loss. Right. But I'm a little irritated that it went out on Dr. Stoppage. You know, Kyle is a cursed opponent, man. <laughs> he is. I, I, will, I will. If I did come back to fighting, he's the one guy that I would never fight again. I would only even think I'd fight Kyle professionally, to be honest, just because, like, at this point, it's already in my head that he's like, a cursed guy. I'm superstitious when it comes to MMA. I won't even wear the same uh, fight shorts, you know, fight after. If I lose a fight, I will change my the music that I come out to, you know, because I think it's now bad luck. You know, I won't have my beard a certain length or I won't get a haircut the week of my fight. You know, if I had, you know, if the, if the last fight, ended in a loss with me getting a haircut the way you know what i'm saying i'm right. super super superstitious when it comes to mma so he's already a cursed opponent for me i would never fight him again i don't care how much money you'd want to give me because who knows next time i go in there what injury am i going to get yeah you know <laughs> when looking at your amateur mma career as a whole do you look back and, and find any fights that you have a favorite fight in or any regrets in your career? How, how will you think of your MMA career 20 years down the line when you look back and reminisce about these 14 fights that you had? Oh, it was a fun 14 fights. Uh, reg regrets, probably taking fights that I shouldn't have taken. I took a fight on 15-minute notice one time. Uh, I won the fight. But it was a 205 that his opponent didn't show up, and he was an out of state fighter from Pennsylvania. And he just, they were like, hey, man, like, sorry, your guy didn't show up. And then our fight team, who was at Wayans, was like, hey, we got a guy at heavyweight who's ready to go if you want to jump up. And they called me and said, hey, Norm, what's your weight? And I said, 238. And he goes, hey, this guy's willing to fight you. Do you want to fight today? And I was actually scheduled to corner. I drove to Emilio and Sons, Emilio, Emilio and Sons in Cuyahoga Falls. And uh, yeah, he said, you have 15 minutes, get here, weigh in. And those are the types of fights that I was taking. Um, I, I took a fight against UFC veteran Josh Sansbury on three-week notice. I was smoking two packs a day. I was not ready for the fight, but they were like, oh, you're our last hope, Norm. We don't have any other heavyweights that can take this fight. We'll make it into a Rocky Balboa story. Like this is a title fight um, against a guy who's ten and two, and I was four and two at the time. And uh, you're never gonna get another opportunity to fight for the title, man. I'm telling you, this is, could be a once in a lifetime thing, man. If you win, uh, and they go to me into it, and uh, I'd have reconstructive surgery on my lip after that fight, you know. And Josh Stansberry later went on to go to the Ultimate Fighter. Um, competing the ultimate fighter and then had a contract in UFC temporarily at light heavyweight. You know, those are, I was scheduled to fight Stipe, uh, my third fight actually. 
and that would have been a really fun time. But now, knowing what I know, would have been a terrible fight for me. I would have got my butt kicked. But um, why didn't that fight with Stipe happen? Why didn't it? Yeah, uh, he just got done with paramedic school. He was two and zero as an mm. amateur. I was two and zero in an amateur. And I guess like when they brought it up to him, not him, but his camp. So Marcus at Strong Style, when they brought it up to him, I they just didn't know me. They just saw the record, and they're like, "Oh man, this guy's like on a on a frequent like two and zero, like re, sorry, recent two and zero. He's on the up. He's got a lot of motivation, a lot of momentum going forward." We don't want that fight. Give us another fight. Stipe hasn't fought in two years. What are you guys trying to do? You got to put him up against the be- – that was their mindset. Little did they know and little did we all know that Stipe was going to literally destroy everyone in Northeast Ohio to the point where, like, no one wanted to fight him. They, they uh, The NAAFS back then had a hard, hard time trying to find him fights. They were, like, trying to get guys from out of state, out of country. They were trying to get guys from out of country to come in and fight him. And, um, like, he literally – had to go pro like that was the only option that he had as an amateur i think it was like five and oh as an amateur and then they were like nope go professional and uh i'm, I'm actually kind of glad that the fight didn't happen it's nice to be like oh, i could have fought him yeah that's what i was and then, thinking you know then there's the other ones like oh, i did fight him but yeah how'd that fight go for you oh that's what i thought yeah i was gonna ask if that's kind of like a, a feather in your cap or a cool story you could tell at least in the future when you say yeah you know i, I fought the heavyweight go Stipe Miocic yeah. in your amateur career. It would have it would have been a good story to tell if I would have survived. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's it's just a story that I tell now. It's like I yeah. could have I could have fought him. Right. We, we all know each other. We're on a first name basis. Nah. Talking to Norm the Jackhammer Carrero on Forge in Ohio, I want to take a step back and look at how you started in combat sports. I know you have a lengthy backstory with experience serving in the military, and thank you for your service. You have experience with weight loss as well. How did combat sports, though, work itself into your life? I, I've always been a competitor, and uh, I always loved wrestling. But when I was 15 years old, my old stepdad took me to a tough man competition in Huntington, West Virginia. And it was like my life transformed. I was seeing it live in person and just watching people, you know, beat each other up for, you know, three one minute rounds. And, and I just, I loved it. And I remember looking at him and I said, man, like, I want to do that. And he's like, well, you got to be 18. And I was like, well, when I turn 18, I'm going to do my first tough man competition. And then from there, I remember he used to rent on VHS the uh, UFC 1s and the UFC 2, and I used to just watch them. You know, Hoist Gracie was one of my favorite all-time fighters. Tank Abbott is still to this day one of my favorite fighters, and I don't even know why. I had a terrible career. It was just – he was just a tank. You know, he – maybe it was because, like, that was my fighting style when I first started was just bite down in your mouthpiece, put your chin down, and just go in throwing punches. And, um, you know, what – yeah, some of these these early shows watching UFC as a kid and, and then going to, uh, you know, tough man competitions as a teenager, that competitive spirit, that's what I wanted to do. I was like, I'm a fighter. I'm a violent – I was a violent kid. So I was like, this is a good outlet for me. I started boxing when I was 14, you know. And um, so I had already, you know, I had wrestling. I had boxing. So I was like, I'm a violent kid, man. I might as well get into this. And, and when I turned 18 and – I did. I turned 18 and I fought my first tough man competition, ironically, at Chaparral's um, under the promoter for Cage Thunder's dad, Randy Jarvis Sr. 
he was the promoter for the Tubman competition. And uh, I made it to the semifinals, and I got my jaw broke. And that was how that ended. But I did send my first fight, I did send the guy to the hospital in the second round. So, and that's actually like how I got my nickname, the Jackhammer, was the ring announcer had to put it, they had a, he had to announce an intermission. When they, uh, when somebody goes to the hospital and they use the ambulance that's on site, the show stops until the ambulance comes back. So they had to stop the show because my opponent had to go to the hospital. And the ring announcer said, oh, looks like Norm's got to watch that jackhammer of a right hand next time. That's how I got my ring name, the jackhammer. Wow. Uh, before that, everyone just called me Big Norm because I was like 280 at the time. And they actually, after that, after that tough man competition, um, Randy Jarvis Sr. offered me a professional contract to go pro in boxing. And I turned it down because I, I told him, I, I said, I want to do MMA. And he said, well, let me hook you up with Mr. Greg Kalikas with the NAAFS. He'll get you started in MMA. And then uh, like nine months later, I was making my MMA debut. Wow, that's an incredible story. The Jackhammer nickname, was it something that you fell in love with right away or did it take time to kind of replace the Big Norm nickname that you had previously? Now, the Big Norm nickname was just a nickname in high school. Um, like I said, that was I was 18 years old, so I, I had just graduated high school, I think seven months prior to that Tough Man. And um, I, fell in that, I fell in love with that name immediately because I knew it was a unique name. Not a lot of people have that nickname in combat sports. And... It's nice when someone else gives you a nickname. I always think it's kind of corny when somebody gives themselves a nickname, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, and I remember, uh, I remember trying to come up with my own nicknames at one point and I was like, well, I'm going to call myself the warden. Uh, my girlfriend's like, that's friggin' stupid. Like, yeah. and I'm like, no, no, I don't, uh, Let's go with the outlaw, you know, and I'm trying to come up with like these weird corny names and, and it's always going to sound dumb when you give yourself your own nickname. You know, it's nice when somebody else gives you one and you earn that nickname. So yeah, it, it was one of those nicknames where I, I heard it and I was like, that's awesome. I like that. You know, plus Norm Carrero, there's nothing that really goes with it. Right. You know, there was a lot of time where like, I was like, ah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to use a nickname. Yeah, I would love to see that rough draft of how many names you went through <laughs> back in the day, but Jackhammer certainly earned. Uh, and of course, your combat sports journey interrupted, right, between that military journey as well. How long did you actually serve in the military? I did a standard contract, which is three years. Okay. And um, when I was in basic training, because I had shipped out in 2000, July of 2010, and my last fight was March 2010, and I was coming off of a, a second round knockout victory. Um, against uh, Jared Carlisle, remember that. <laughs> remember that fight. But um, so my mentally, my training and everything was fresh going into basic training, and they always do a combatives tournament in basic training, and I won that. Um, actually, I have all the pictures on my social media of us, you know, the four winners standing in line, and I've got some uh, pictures that they took of us during the competition. And and when you compete in combatives in the military, you're wearing your military ACUs, and it's kind of like a gi. And um, and yeah, I ended up winning that competition in a company of, I want to say, 75 to 100 people. And then obviously I was in the light heavyweight to heavyweight weight class. So they combined the weight classes because in the military, you're not supposed to weigh a lot. So there wasn't a lot. There wasn't too many big guys. So they combined the light heavies with the heavies. And I ended up winning that, that competition, which got me level one certified instructor. Uh, so that's I did that. 
I also competed at Week of the Eagles when I was with the 101st Airborne Division, which is like this huge tournament, which I love the format. And it's all like one day. It all happens in a day. And you go in there and you grapple. You do like three rounds of grappling. And if you win all three rounds, then you go to two rounds of slap fighting. It's like uh, there's like kick. It's like kickboxing, but you can open hand slap. So okay. it's always funny when you get a guy who's 115 pounds who entered that division and he's fighting a girl because most women in the military are, are petite anyway. So they're fighting in that competition. Actually, one of our guys went to the championship against a, a female captain and lost. It's actually super funny. But um, yeah, two rounds of like open hand kickboxing, slap fighting. And then if you win that, the final championship round was in a cage, MMA amateur rule style. It was so awesome to do. And uh, so, yeah, I, I got to do stuff like that. So even in the military, I was still training in combatives. Right. They were jujitsu gyms off, off posts that we were able to go to and continue training. Um, and then, yeah, I competed Week of the Eagles and, and then level one uh, combat certified instructor in the military. So, yeah, when I... When I got out, I, the plan was to go right into it. But then my gym shut down, the one uh, Rock Hard MMA over um, that was Unique Fitness on Arlington Road. Uh, the owner, Scott Keener, he decided to uh, auction off all his gear and, and shut it down. So I had no fight team. I had no gym. So I just stopped. Did you earn a lot of respect among your peers for competing and even winning some of those competitions back in the military? Locally here? Yeah. No. I'll be honest, I don't it doesn't get brought up too much in conversation. Yeah, it's uh they locally too, it's like I was in I mean when I did this stuff, I was in Kentucky. So not a lot of people knew what I was doing here. So when I got home and I went on that that three or four year period where I just didn't compete, I didn't train, and I just got fat, nobody really knew who I was from that period on. So when I got back into the community in 2016, I felt like I was meeting everybody for the first time. Hmm. So I, I think it was kind of similar. Like the guys who knew me as an OG um, that I went back with and knew them as a OGs, we knew each other. But all the new fighters had no idea who I was. So I had to, you know, I had to earn, I had to re-earn all that respect and everything amongst the MMA community for what it is now. You mentioned the slap fighting, and this is completely off base, but right now, of course, it's making a lot of headlines, Dana White's slap fighting league. What do you make of all this stuff going on right now? I'm I'm so, like, wishy-washy when it comes to power slap. So okay. when it first came out, I immediately was like, I want to do that. I'm built for that. I've got a big neck, big hands. I'm short. I'm stocky. I've got a strong base, a strong legs, and really strong shoulders. I'm heavy-handed. I'm built for power slap. Uh, and then as time went on and I started seeing a lot of the injuries that were coming out of it and just seeing what people's faces looked like and um, and then really paying attention to it and realizing that these guys are – they're not slapping each other. They're open palm punching each other or hitting each other. So, like, these guys are getting laid out in power slap because they're getting hit with the palm of this guy's hand. They're almost like getting hit with their wrist. You're getting hit with bone. I was like, yeah, uh, I don't think I want to compete in that anymore, you know. But I, there was a point where I actually brought it to the promotion of Cage Thunder and said, hey, man, uh, what do you think about going in on a power slap 
league locally try to become the first amateur power slap league in Ohio? Like, what do you think about that? Do you think we can get the commission on board? And they're like, eh, I don't know if I want to touch that, man. So, it, it, you know, we might see power slap in Ohio at one point. We might see an amateur power slap league kind of come on because everybody talks crap about it and everybody laughs at it, but they can't stop watching it. And that's what makes it, you know, that that's all that matters. It's entertaining. It's stupid. Yeah. Definitely entertaining, though. It can make money. You mentioned the pinched nerve in your neck, too, right? So, like, that wouldn't help with power slap either. Oh, yeah. It would, it, it would be terrible right, right. now. <laughs> I'm somebody when those type of posts come across my feed, I can't even watch because those gruesome knockouts without the ability to defend yourself, it's hard for me to watch. Is this something that entertains you? I mean, of course, you brought it to the attention of Cage Thunder guys, <laughs> but... Is this something that you can watch and digest normally, or is it something that you also kind of don't love consuming? You know, it's weird. So I can watch people get knocked out all day, but I can't watch people get, like, their legs broken. So, okay. like, when Anderson Silva uh, broke his leg on uh, Wyman, and, and then Wyman, Wyman did too. it. Yeah, yep. I literally, my whole body gets chills, and I have to look away. Like, it's the... I can't watch, like, what was it, Scarred, that show Scarred about the, the skateboard injuries. If I'm about to watch a video of someone break a bone, like, I know it's, I'll turn it off. I can't watch it. But I can watch someone get knocked out all day. It's huh. the strangest thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm kind of the opposite, even though that Uriah Hall, Chris Weidman injury, that was, that was something else, and that was definitely hard to consume. Yeah. Getting back on to your story, of course, I did want to ask, about the experience you had post-military. I know everybody kind of leaves the military their own way, but any kind of experiences that you had and the lasting effects from the military that you had? Uh, yeah, like I said, I, I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, when I got out, the how I got out was different than most people. Most people have some dwell time. They get to go back home. They spend months you know, kind of reacclimating back into society and being, you know, back in America, um, you know, because they just they just spent a year or so in, in a third world country. And uh, it's nice to just finally get a hot shower. And so you have uh, there's there's a period of time that I believe every soldier needs to be back in country and be around, you know, civilization and society. And I didn't get that. I was in Afghanistan and three weeks later I was in Ohio. They got me out quick. I got, you know, I, I left mid-deployment, got home, a captain a week, packed all my stuff, and we left. That is a very hard thing to do, going from Afghanistan into Ohio and then trying to live a normal life. Like, you didn't just spend half the year in Afghanistan, you right. know? Like, it, it's, it is very difficult, and uh, I was very angry, and... uh it made like going to the store hard, going uh, to the gas station. Um, I was losing my temper a lot. I was just hard to be around. So I became a hermit. I just never left the house ever. Um, I played video games for upwards of 16 hours a day. I was uh, developing a fast food addiction. I was making my wife go get me food three, four times a day. God, this was before DoorDash and everything like that. If, if we had... DoorDash back then, I don't know, God, I don't even know what would have happened, how much money. I mean, I was, I, we were spending $900 a month on fast food alone, and um, I was putting myself and my family, most of my family, in a financial uh, uh, hardship. I was eating 
upwards of 10 to 11,000 calories a day and I was not active. So I was just sitting down playing video games, consuming these calories and the onslaught of medical conditions started just hitting me. That caused type two diabetes, which caused another chemical imbalance in my head mixed in with post-traumatic stress disorder, not a good combination. And I became a very uh, violent individual, um, punching holes in the wall. I mean, I remember flipping my couch at one time, like just completely from the ground, flipping it up. My wife's a trooper. She, uh, I've said this many times about her. Like I never physically put my hands on her, but verbally, mentally, I abused the hell out of her. And she is a trooper. Any woman, any other woman leaves me. She, they divorce me. They go that we go our separate way. No one sticks it out. I, I have no idea. I mean, to me, that's just love. She wrote it out uh, through the worst of it. She had every right to leave. You know, like she wasn't with me for the money or the benefits. We had nothing. You know, I was spending all the money on fast food, and we barely had any money to pay the bills. I mean, we had to have help from family members sometimes just so we don't get evicted from an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment, because we just had no money. She had every opportunity to leave and every right to leave and actually live a better life at that in that moment, and she didn't. I have no idea why she did. Yeah. Like I said, it's just through thick and thin. But, uh, yeah, that those are those are some of the things, the issues that I had post-military getting out. Like I said, it, it just it didn't work for me. And even at your lowest, having that support system and those people that really stick by you through thick and thin, that's really what's important. And especially in your recovery process as well. And you mentioned the weight gain and the fast food addiction and weight loss has been a large part of your story. Tell me more about the time frame of that, when you gained the weight and how severe did it actually become? So I, I want to say 2013 to 2015 was like, those were the years, well, probably 13 to 16 60 at the end of the 16 about halfway through 2016 that was when i started going all right let's let's do something about it but uh yeah no i developed the fast food addiction i was eating a lot i went from like 240 pounds to 380 something pounds i was almost 400 pounds and i did that in a very short period of time i gained so much weight that the my skin detached itself from the abdominal wall and the muscles um, uh, split in half from the center, uh, like a diastasis recti. Where if I were to lay down and, and kind of crunch up, you'd see all my intestines, kind of like stomach pushing up through, um, kind of like like with pregnant women get it um, because the the weight gain is so rapid. I had type two diabetes, which gave me neuropathy. I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol. My triglyceride levels were in the thousands. My my blood sugar was like 500 for like three months. I had sleep apnea. Again, like part of the PTSD too. Like I wasn't showering for like weeks sometimes. That with weight gain, terrible, terrible. I had a lot of issues, uh, hygiene problems for uh, even even after I lost the weight, still struggling to like get my hygiene back just because of like how unhealthy of a life that I was living. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I gained I gained all that weight from that from let's say thirteen to sixteen, and then I saw a picture one day. I was at a concert and sitting in this lawn chair, and my gut was basically up to my knees, and I just was like. Man, is that it must be the picture, right? 
put on 10 pounds, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and my wife's like, no, that's how you look. Wow. And I was like, oh, well, crap, you know. Right. <laughs> and and uh, it had been offered to me before weight loss surgery. And I just laughed at him. I could do this by myself. I don't need weight loss surgery. But I was too far gone mentally. Like I would try to go to the gym and I would try to go on a diet and I'd just fail and fail and fail. I'd go to the gym for three days and I'd, I'd disappear for months. I just couldn't do it. And um, finally, I, I called uh, SUMA Healthcare and I talked to the bariatric unit. And I said, hey, uh, I want to like to uh, schedule an appointment to go. And, and even then, going to my first appointment for the weight loss surgeon, I was skeptical. I was in denial. I was like, that, not going to take me. My BMI is not high enough. I'm not that fat. And uh, they're like, yeah, your BMI is like 58, dude. And I was like, yeah, that's good, right? Like, no, like. 35 is obese, like morbidly obese. You're at 58, dude. Really, now you're walking. You're walking in here, and uh, they approved me for surgery. Uh, approved me to go through the program immediately. And then I spent 10 months uh, in the bariatric program, giving blood every month, talking to a um, a bariatric psychiatrist every month, uh, seeing a dietitian, the nutritionist. Just a 10 month program. They submitted all the paperwork to my insurance. My insurance initially declined it because there was a clerical error, and then I had to wait an additional three months for them to approve it and for my surgery. So in June, it was June 21st, 2017, I actually had my surgery, and uh, I think I lost 100 pounds, maybe 100 and almost 150 pounds. I want to say around 150 pounds the first year. So I was, you know, I was 385 June 20 or of, of 17, and by June of 18, I was. I was I was 230 pounds maybe, so it was 220 yeah 220 230 pounds, so rapid weight loss. I felt fantastic. All my medical problems went away. It was my my mind, and that was the biggest thing. My mind went back to normal, and that and I wasn't angry anymore. I was patient. I wasn't you know I didn't have a temper. It was it's it was weird. It's very weird like transition. It sounds like that doctor's appointment was almost the turning point for you in your life that encouraged you to lose all the weight. I'm just curious, though, it would have been easy for you to stay down that road and stay down that path of being obese and going through that. And you had that fast food addiction as well. What encouraged you to make that initial call? And you had your doubts going into it. But that first step, making that call, making the appointment, what encouraged you to go and do that? Yeah, the doctor basically told me that if I didn't make a, a lifestyle change and if I just lived the same way that I was living, still eating the fast food, not exercising, um, he's like, you, you're going you're gonna to have your first heart attack in six months. And I was only 28 years old. And he's like, you're, you're going to be dead before you're 35. There's no way that you live, you're alive in the next five years. If you keep living this way, you don't make any changes. And my first initial thought was, eh, whatever. And that's, that's the PTSD. You know, my wife used to, hey, don't you want to walk your daughter down the aisle? No, I don't care. Like that was my, I had, I had, didn't care for life. I wasn't suicidal. You know, I never tried to take my own life. I just didn't care for my quality of life. Like if I would have died, I wouldn't have cared. That makes sense. Like I didn't right. care to die. I just wasn't actively trying to kill myself, but that was my mindset. I just didn't care. Just didn't care anymore. Once the medical stuff started getting bad, 
So I started getting into the hospital and I started physically feeling terrible. Um, the type two diabetic medicine that they were giving me wasn't working. You know, I was getting, uh, I get a toothache and it would turn into this whole ordeal because when you're, when you're type two diabetic, you don't heal properly. Your body doesn't fight infection. So like uh, I was in the hospital with a, like I had like a boil or something on my inner thigh and it swelled up to, and got infected, turned into Mercer and, and it swelled up to the size of a tennis ball and they had to lance it. And uh, that's actually when I found out that, you know, I was first diabetic because they immediately did my blood sugar and it was seven, like 20 or something. I was like 700. And they're like, whoa, yeah. what's going on here? And they were like, when was the last time you, you took your medicine? And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you're not diabetic? I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, it was, but once you start physically feeling terrible, you want that to stop. You know, even though I didn't have a lot of um, quality of life left in me, once I started to feel the pain and I was miserable all the time, I was like, what can I do to make this stop? Okay, we got we to gotta lose some weight. And I remember seeing my doctor and I would go in there for some BS reason, like, oh, yeah, it hurts when I do this or it hurts when I do that or this hurts when I stand up. And he would just look at me like, why do you think? I'm like, I don't know. I'm here to see you. And they're like, come on, dude. And he would like circle his paper and, and point it and it would, he had my weight circled. That's why. Because I remember, I, why, am I, why am I getting dizzy when I stand up? And he'd circle my blood pressure and he'd show me. He goes, that's why. It was, it was right in front of me. I was just too blind to see it. Like all these problems that I had was because of my weight gain. You know, it was like, so it, all, everything was there. And finally I put it all together. I was like, all right, let's go ahead and get this weight, this, this surgery and get this weight off. Did losing the weight come naturally to you, given your experience, you know, in the military and in, in previous combat experiences and being a competitor? Or was it, you know, one of the most challenging processes of your life? Um, I had lost weight before. Right. Um, when I made my debut for mixed martial arts, I was like 320 pounds when I started training. Seven, we seven weeks later, I weighed in at 264. So I have lost lots of weight in short periods of time. I was a wrestler, so I was used to losing that weight. But when I had gone to my heaviest, the I, I said, physically couldn't do it. Mentally, absolutely not. The hardest thing. And I, like, I know a lot of people make fun of like fat people, and they they make jokes and they kind of poke at them a little bit, and they go, "Oh, you just put the fork down, you lose." And it's like it's it's a lot harder than you might think it is. And I I never would have believed it until I experienced it myself, but you know, mentally not being able to get yourself up out of bed and go to the gym or eat right. And when you're that heavy, you got to think, I'm going to say a lot of weird shit right now. So when, like, when you're cool, when you're, when you're, uh, uh, your basal metabolic rate is that high and say I was 385 pounds, which means my basal metabolic rate is like 3,800 calories to maintain my weight. So when you go on a, a diet at that weight, you have to slowly uh, uh, re subtract your calories. So I would have had to do like a 3,500 calorie diet just to lose little bits of pounds every single day or just three to five pounds a week. And then you subtract your calories and you get more into a deficit, more into a deficit. Well, you don't, I know that now, but back then, I was like, oh, I, the only way I know how to lose weight is to cut my calories down to like 1,200 or 1,500 calories, put myself in a huge caloric deficit, and then I'll just lose the weight and go to the gym and walk on a Stairmaster or something. When you cut, when you're that heavy and you cut your calories down just 2,000, it's a crash diet. 
and crash dieting is not sustainable for life. You can't do that permanently. No, that's why so many people fail on diets is because they put themselves, they, they, they are eating unrealistic amounts of calories and their body's like, yeah, yeah, we're not doing this. And that's why you're always hungry. And that's why you get headaches. And that's why you fail the diet. That's why when your, your cheat day turns into a cheat week and then a cheat month, you know, it's hard. It's very difficult to do. And if you don't have the proper education or the knowledge on how to lose weight and you're that heavy, it's just not going to work. I didn't know all that until after I had my surgery and I started really kind of like doing research and, and I was doing the food game and the calorie game and manipulating calories and all that stuff, trying to figure out how to continue to lose weight on weight loss surgery while actively training for performance. And that was always my big thing was, how am I gonna train for performance when I can't eat carbs? You know, how am I gonna do it? So I had to drink a lot of my calories and a lot of my carbs and stuff like that, so. What are some of the health implications you are dealing with now from that surgery and from how heavy you were back then and and now obviously you're in great shape but i'm sure you're still dealing with some things that you had experienced back then oh yeah i mean my joints my knees my elbows my hands like my wrists of the carpal tunnel my wrists and, mm -hmm. and and arthritis in my knees and my back those are those are the injuries that i had not they weren't fighting injuries you know, they were being too fat injuries, you know, not being able to sleep, sleep right, um, constant sciatic issues in my lower back, you know, just walking around my knees, walking and carrying that kind of weight for so long, you know, it, it, it has its toll on you. And then uh, I, I think I still have a, um, like, I'm still insulin resistant. I think that's the biggest medical issue that I had because of being how, how heavy I was. So if I have sugar, I just, I'll just pass out. Like I just get tired and I'll fall asleep. You know, it has like a reverse effect on me. Like some people take a shot of dextrose while they're at the gym to give themselves a, a pump or like, so the sugar goes directly to their bloodstream and gives them more energy or they'll, uh, They'll take like these recovery shakes or recovery drinks that are loaded with sugar and carbs to give them more energy. I can't do that. If I drink that, I'll start yawning in the middle of my workout and I get immediately get tired. So you mentioned the picture at that one concert where you were heavy. What do you think of when you look at those pictures before your weight loss and see someone who now I'm sure looks like a total stranger? <laughs> I, I, I used to laugh at those pictures now. I regret not taking more, you know, I, I kind of wish I had more pictures of me back then so I can show people more proof that like, hey man, this is what I was and this is what I am now and that you can achieve this too. And I used to say like, if I can inspire just one person, then, in, you know, it was worth it. But yeah, that, that guy in that picture, he not only was a different person physically, but that was also a different person mentally as well. If you were having an interview tomorrow with the old Norm, it would be a completely different interview. It wouldn't even be the same guy talking. So that's how different I was as a person. You would, you would, I was a complete stranger. Yeah, and obviously your story so motivational, so inspirational, I'm sure, to many people. Thankfully, you have made that long road to, uh, to where you are now. And once again, this is Norm the Jackhammer Carrero with us on Forge in Ohio. Back to MMA, I believe you started at Evolve and you even trained with UFC heavyweights Jeff Hughes. 
What was that process like in your initial exposure to the sport at Evolve and training with a guy as credentialed as Hughes? Well, I didn't uh, I didn't start at Evolve. I don't even think Evolve was around when I actually made my debut, if okay. I'm being honest. I think I, I started with a, a local fight team called Rising Phoenix. They were training out of a warehouse uh, over where the old um, Akron University Stadium was. There was like this old warehouse right behind the stadium. And uh, I remember it got shut down by the fire marshal. I mean, and that's how we were back then uh, when it came to MMA and fighting, especially in 2006 and 2007. There really wasn't a lot of gyms. There were gyms. There just wasn't a lot of them. And I don't I don't even think there was any gyms in Akron. So everybody was trying to create gyms. Uh, MMA was at its infancy in Ohio. So, like, it, nobody knew what it was. You know, nobody knew what jujitsu was in Ohio. Like, you go to the hospital and you're like, what happened? Like, oh, I broke my rib doing jujitsu. They're like, doing what? Mm. No one had an idea of what anything was. Your jujitsu instructor was a guy who knew how to do an arm bar that he learned off of YouTube. That was your instructor. That was your coach. You know, you found a team and our team was just like four guys who just so happened to like MMA and wanted to start doing it. So I, I hooked up with a team called Rising Phoenix. And uh, yeah, I mean, that lasted for maybe a year. And then I tried to create my own team called Team Domination. Made t-shirts t and everything, had a logo. We were trying to find a spot, but uh, financially we just couldn't get a spot. And then I got picked up by Russ Halsey at Pan Headquarters. And mm -hmm. I was one of the original members of Pan Headquarters. I think it was like, it was myself, Jason Davis, Russ Halsey, uh, Jeremy Mathani, Dan Gale, got a, a Johnny Owens. I'm probably missing a couple people. But yeah, we were like the original members and, and we went to Unique Fitness, which later became Rock Hard MMA. But that's where Pan Headquarters were training in the back room. They had some wrestling mats where they did their kickboxing class. And um, that's where we trained. That's right. who I fought for. I think Steve Whitehurst, who was the referee of my first fight, actually was our jujitsu instructor. And then his son came in and was helping out as well. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, and I trained at Evolve. I did train at Evolve uh, for a little bit, and I was there because I was at, I was real heavy back then. And yeah, they just wanted me to lay on Jeff Hughes. <laughs> it was basically like he was do like cage work, you know, and like back up against the cage on his butt and they'd have me being almost 400 pounds or I'm just going to lay on him and you got to get out. And he's him trying to push the weight. That was basically what they used me for. Uh, <laughs> but I, I left Evolve and I ended up going to Apex Fight Systems and that's where I ended my career with that team. So, Yeah, you had a lot of good things to say about Apex Fight Systems and about that gym and your retirement speech. What's it like training at, at Apex? It's It's got its ups and downs. You know, uh, we started at, like, well, when I started with them, we were going to, like, L.A. Fitness in Cuyahoga Falls. Um, now it's at East Borda. And we were training in their lacrosse room. Not lacrosse, sorry, their handball. Their handball courts. Racquetball. There we go. Their racquetball courts. So it was just white walls and then everyone in the gym looking at us, basically just beating each other up and sparring and stuff like that. And, um we went from there to a location on Arlington that was connected to the Family Dollar right there. Actually, I worked down the street. And then that place was, like, constantly getting broken into by, like, homeless people. 
And it was just a really bad neighborhood. Someone set our dumpsters on fire one time. The heat didn't work. So in the wintertime, we were training in like like 50 degrees. Like you could see your breath when you're – and it was like, man, this can't be healthy, right? I think we only had like one light that we're wearing. I mean, it was, it was 9,000 square feet of space, but, man, it was dark. It, you felt like it was underground. And, uh, hey, I felt, I felt at home. You know, I loved it. And then, uh, then we finally got, you know, Brian finally got uh, the place over on Manchester Road in Coventry. Um, it was uh, 3333 Manchester Road. It's literally right next to the Johnny J's and the Save-A-Lot. And they got a great setup over there now. They got a 24-foot cage, a boxing ring, like 60 by 40 uh, uh, feet of mat space, wrestling mat space, like 15 bags. Like, they've, you know, they're doing special over there. They've got... You know, we've got our uh, heavyweight, former NFL offensive lineman, Bryce Hargrove, is yeah. with us. and uh, He's fighting on the next card, right? Yeah, he's, yeah. he's making his heavyweight debut. So I'm actually looking – I'm really looking forward to that. You know, that guy is hard to take down. Has he made that transition well from NFL to MMA, or has he kind of always been interested in MMA? I don't know. I don't know if he's always been interested in MMA or not. But he uh, is obviously like a lot of guys when they, they – kind of transition over from one sport to the other unless you have like tremendous boxing experience you're 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 going to be hard with the punching so that's where he's at right now you know he's 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 learning he's getting there he's punching uh but when it comes to grappling and taking him down and moving him it's he's an offensive lineman he's six foot four six foot five he's 315 right now he's probably lower now because he's cutting weight for this fight but um dude's got a solid lower half man it's insane like i remember grappling with him and i was like he's a a pause i think i took him down one time and i celebrated when i was done i was like i took him down but it hurt my body so much just to get him down i remember making the joke i was like man i might have won that battle but i'm gonna lose the war in the long run man that hurt trying to take him down so Sounds like he's an intimidating figure. I mean, he has that huge chest piece tattoo oh, yeah. as he well. Had that, he had a sleeve in high school. Right. Yeah, he had yeah. Like, like two full sleeves in high school when he played football in Coventry. So what brought him to <laughs> Apex? How did he end up back he, in well, Apex? So he, he trains at the uh, Steel Yard, Keith Shen. He goes there. We're like, I don't know, 50 steps away from Steel Yard. Okay. And so it's just word of mouth. And he's like, man, I want to try this. And he came in and he started – he just started, and now uh, well, it's like six months later, and I was making his debut April 1st. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be exciting. I'm happy for him, too. I'm, I'm looking forward to see what he can do. Yeah, Everybody's just... different in the cage. That's the most ex- the mm. most uh, interesting thing, the most exciting thing to me is seeing somebody, like even if you know someone who's never who's never fought before, watching them train, you're like, okay, cool, cool. But they are, you are completely different in the cage. There are two people, man two people they're the training you and then there's the competitive you they lock you in a cage and you're fighting for your life you and it's always it's it's so fun to watch that come out of people yeah so i love watching the sport it's just especially locally professionally you don't know these guys so you're like ah, whatever you expect them to fight but you may like 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 you i don't really know you all that well but if you came to the gym and started training mma and then you're like i'm gonna take my, i'm gonna make my mma debut i would be so excited to watch what you turn into when that cage door shuts it would be so fun to see that that right. that whole transition you're like what is and and sometimes people fail sometimes they get in the cage and they panic and they just you're like what is this what are you doing you look so much different in the gym but then you get some guys 
who you know is naturally violent, who's got that that natural, you know, aggressive nature to them, and that door shuts, and you could see it. Um, you remember the Connor. I can't pronounce his last name, but the kid who uh, fought on the last card, the bantamweight who picked the dude up and slammed him yes. down and knocked him yes. out. He's on. He's with Apex. Again, you you watch him, and I remember just training with this kid and going, you know, when he first started out, and I was pointing out every time he'd load up with his right hand, which ironically I did that to Kyle during our fight because he was loading up on his right. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I would, I would point it out. Connor, you're loading up on your right. I, and, and every time he'd do it, I'd hit him with a left hook or I'd hit him with a jab, and I'd always stick my hand out in his face. And I'd always tell him, I'm like, hey, you're loading up. You're loading up. Watching, going from that to, hey, man, we're, we're training you, we're mentoring you, we're trying to make you better, hey, you're doing this wrong, get it better, to what he just did in that cage is so exciting to me to watch. You know, this kid who knew nothing about fighting and now he made his debut and he literally became a, a local superstar overnight with that win. And now he's, you know, now he's about to get exposed. You know, that, that exposure can be there because now he's going to go up against some stiff competition. I mean, hell, and the guy that he fought was like, a division one wrestler in college. So he wasn't even anything that, you know, he's not like he made his debut against some nobody. So it is, it is, I'm curious, man. I'm see where he goes too. Yeah. It sounds like exciting things coming out of apex right now and exciting contest at cage thunder 20. Well, you may be out of MMA. You're still an athlete. I know you're into CrossFit hurling and Alex Henry told me even Quidditch as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some fighters, you know, struggle to find something to do after their careers, but it seems like you have it all figured out. What brought you into those other sports and what do those mean for you as an athlete post MMA? Oh yeah, I got into CrossFit just because I needed something to do. I broke my ribs in jujitsu and I uh, was laid out for like 90 days and I decided that I wasn't going back to the academy that I broke my ribs at uh, for personal reasons. Um, based off the rib injury and I was like you know what I need to get some I need I need to get in better shape and that was basically it and I had tried CrossFit back in 2013 I loved it and then I got really into like the CrossFit games like watching the games on YouTube and then when they started putting it on TV and I was like man I want to go to the games one day and I got into the community and I love I fell in love with the community it's so much different than MMA. And MMA, the community will turn on you instantly. It's all political. You win, everybody loves it. You lose, you're a piece of crap, you suck. Eh. Right. You know, you have so many haters in MMA. You have, you know, you could you could be so loved but have be so hated at the same time like Conor McGregor. You know, it's the politics of of mixed martial arts in the community is so toxic at times. And I've experienced that for a long time. To get into a the CrossFit or functional fitness community is completely different. I mean, it's so uplifting. It's you you fail a rep and uh, and they they don't make fun of you. They're, you know what I'm saying? You you could be 400 pounds walking in and they're not gonna be like, oh look at this fat ass walking here. Don't break the box. You know stuff like that. They don't. There's none of that. You don't get made fun of. It's very uplifting community. Very supportive. They did an article on me about weight loss and how much weight I I did lose ultimately, and it got like. It got like millions of views. It went viral on the in the community. It, it was shared thirty five thousand times in different countries, and not. I, and, and I was I started going through the comments. And I was like, well, let's see all these haters. Let's see who wants to talk crap. Not one comment I saw where somebody was speaking negative of me. They, if anything, I was getting uh, messages, DMs on Instagram asking me how I did it and what was my diet and what was my workout plan, um, my CrossFit. 
box was actually getting messages and, and people were like, hey, great job with Norm, by the way. Like that was the community. And I fell in love with that community. And then I was introduced to Olympic weightlifting. And I was like, oh, this is fun. So I really got, I started competing in Olympic weightlifting, which is directly uh, connected with CrossFit as well, because all their lifts are Olympic lifts. And when you're in shape, everything is easier. You know, work is easier. You know, mowing the lawn is easier. Everything is easier. You know, waking up in the morning is easier. And um, they have a motto use your fitness to do more fitness basically like you know use your fitness and that's what i did when i joined the hurling team the akron celtic guard um i was using my fitness and i was like i'm gonna get out here i'm gonna do this sport i have no idea it's like an irish national sport it's like a that's what that's the quidditch joke because right. you got your paddle and you're catching like this this ball looks like a lacrosse ball and uh and yeah you're it's like field hockey and lacrosse and baseball had a baby and that's what you got hurling you know play it on a soccer field and there was 13 players on the field on each team, and it's the fastest sport in the game. Yeah. Or, if, sorry, the fastest sport in the world. There we go. You mentioned the community in MMA and how it's full of politics, kind of even toxic even, if you can call it that. One thing that MMA has going for it, and I guess against it as well, is that it's still young. You know, the UFC celebrating its 30th year anniversary right now. Do you ever foresee the MMA community changing becoming more of a accepting community kind of similar to crossfit in a way or do you always think it'll be the way it is right now uh, it'll always be the way it is right now the mma community will never change you love them for it but you hate them for it but it'll never change i mean look how long boxing has been around and in boxing is more toxic than mma right now mostly because of who's fighting in boxing but it is a very toxic community in boxing as well and it's been around for Hundred years, I mean, more than a hundred years. So I don't think that uh, the MMA community will get better, especially when you got guys like Dana White, who himself is a toxic individual, who has no problem trolling the internet and has no problem getting in front of the camera and calling out these people. He's he himself is an aggressive guy. He's a, so the sport's going to be aggressive. Yeah, that's and a great point. Their their fans are going to be aggressive. And it's always going to be like that. It, it, it'll always be like that. And you're still involved in the sport of MMA, of course. When did you first start in MMA media? Uh, 2016. I created a podcast, Rubber City Throwdown, and then immediately started working for Cage Thunder. I think it was like Cage Madness back then, actually. And that's when we started kind of taking pictures. We were talking about them on the podcast. We started covering their fight card. I started going to all their shows. I mean, I was still buying a ticket. And then when Honor Fighting Championship came around, that's when we got in and we started doing interviews. I kind of talked to the promoter back then. It was like, hey, man, like we want to do media. We'll love to do interviews. We got the podcast. You'd be the official voices of Honor, that kind of thing. And um, I, I expressed my interest in commentating. They hooked me up with that and I actually commentated one, uh, like their – I remember which show I actually commentated on. Like, I don't know if it was their second show or third. But yeah, I started doing their media for them. So started with the interviews, got into commentary. And then I talked to my buddy, Matt, who has been like my day one with the podcast. And he's more of like my tech guy. I think uh, you might have met him. Uh, big guy that was behind the computer at yeah. the Cage Thunder event. He was like, hey, man, I want to be a cameraman. I want to record these shows. So we invested in a camera, and I talked to promotion. I was like, hey, man, we'll record and edit these videos for you, these fights. So we started doing, started uh, 
recording the show, like actually recording the fights. I go home and I, I taught myself how to edit videos and then I would edit the fights and I'd put them on their YouTube uh, or their Facebook page. Now, fast forward years later, now I'm running their pay-per-view uh, for Cage Thunder. So I'm actually a partner with the promotion now. And I'm actually kind of more the boss now. I delegate a lot of stuff down to people. And, you know, what Alex Henry does, that's what I, that was my job. You know, I was literally, literally doing what he does. I was doing interviews and I was doing commentary. You know, that the only difference between what me and him were doing is that I was, I was also in charge of my cameraman and making sure he got batteries and we're doing those swaps and all that good stuff. Every once in a while we would switch places and I would record a little bit while I had a break. But, but yeah. And I think that's why I, when Alex got a hold of me, I was like, yeah, man. It's like, he's like, he, he showed his interest and I was like, this is how I got in. I got in because I messaged somebody on Facebook was like, this is what I want to do. Can I, work with you and they gave me a shot and this is where i eventually am now at i, I want to go further with it and the production value is just going to get better for these shows so when alex reached out to me in that same format that same way i was like yeah come on in i got a perfect job for you right so and now you're paying it forward as you were once treated back then you're now like the media supervisor there running these pay-per-views, like you said, and the production value is only going to go up from here. What does that role mean to you and being on that side of things at Cage Thunder? You know, it, it's I, it's a love-hate for me because on one hand, it's a job. I mean, you don't get paid a lot of money. You don't do stuff like this to get rich um, unless you heavily invest in yourself and your uh, business and you go to school and you're just really confident in your ability to get the job done. And then I have stuff that happened to us on the last, the last show, the one that I fought on, uh, the website crashed. And then for an hour and a half, people couldn't watch pay-per-view. So I ended up having to put the Vimeo link for free on the social media and give out refund requests and, and stuff like that based on, and then stuff completely out of our control. You know, too many people are trying to buy the pay-per-views and, completely crashed the website and and we were running around with the our heads cut off for a little bit trying to figure everything out and then finally just compromised and was like here you go here's it for free you know and so it's a, it's a love hate we have our good shows we have our bad shows and again this isn't something that I'm like passionate about doing you know it's this is a like like I was I'm passionate about fighting I'm passionate about crossfit and training religiously and routinely every single day I can honestly get fired from doing media stuff tomorrow and it won't affect me the way that retiring from the sport of MMA has affected me. So um, I would be upset, obviously, because you don't want to get fired from a job. But it's not something that I'd be like, man, uh, you know, I wouldn't beat myself right. up over. It's something that I enjoy doing, but it is so stressful. And again, like I became a hermit because I didn't want to talk to people. I don't like to deal with people a lot of the times. I don't, especially people that I don't know. So when I get angry people calling me for refunds, I kind of block everything out. I start shutting down. It causes a lot of anxiety. A lot of those old feelings start to come back. I don't want to deal with anything. I start losing interest, start questioning my decision or my choice to work for the promotion. And then like a week later, I'm like, I'm good because everything stops. You know, the, the phone calls stop, the negativity stops. You know, because even with... You, you edit a video, there's always going to be some jackass out there that's like, oh, this sucks. 
you know, you, you have a pay-per-view and you're like, oh, this pay-per-view went great. And then there's that one guy who's like, oh, there wasn't even commentary. It's like, okay, did you get to watch the fight? Then shut up. Mm. You know, like we don't need tail of the tapes and title screens and all this crazy stuff right now. We're an amateur company. You pay because you want to watch a fight. When you don't get to watch that fight because like our website crashes, then, I, you know, you have to be understanding and okay, you didn't receive the product, I got you. And you have to deal with it. And You said that Cage Thunder has had its good events and its bad events. I believe, you know, Cage Thunder 19 was incredible. I know the website went down, but the event itself, I believe it was 16 fights, only three went to decision, two fighters won amateur titles. There was an incident with the crowd, of course, and it featured your retirement as well. I'm sure you and other Cage Thunder employees had to be happy with the event overall. Uh, yeah, the event... These events are only getting better, and that's yeah. why they're they're moving into a more professional direction right now. They're hiring a social media manager. They've gotten themselves like a, a lawyers involved. They're a legitimate LLC. They they are making changes. They got a new web designer. They are. We're trying to up production value. I mean, how Randy Jarvis just bought Apex like equipment just to show thanks and support for coming in and and fighting on the card he did something similar with victory and canton not too long ago i mean he's it's you know these guys are they're the real deal now and they're great to work with yeah these shows just keep getting better and better but yeah from where we came from when i fought tyree johnson that fight we had six fights started at like 10 all these fights started dropping off and we actually had to get out um I think the promotion actually had to offer everybody their money back. Luckily, nobody wanted their money back. Everyone's like, nah, we're here to see some fights. But like per state, like Ohio, if you have less than eight fights, you have to offer their money back. You can still have the show, but with some limitation. And uh, that fight, that show almost got canceled. And then the promotion almost went out. Like they almost shut everything out. They were so close. Kayshawn, there was this close from being no more. And uh, honestly, I think the pandemic helped. I think it really helped because we went years, a couple of years without MMA in Ohio. I think there was like one promotion. I think Ohio Combat League was still occasionally putting on a fight. But that two years, it was kids graduating from high school, them wannabe fighters, bunch of new faces, a lot of guys amped up, eager to fight, a lot of old guys, veterans of the sport that are coming in, wanting to fight, wanting to train, not being able to because of the pandemic, being in the house all day. And then all of a sudden, boom, they put it back in Ohio. The promotion starts going. All these new fighters, guys making their debut, ticket sellers, like guys like Devin Watkins, who can sell like an entire, he can sell all the tables if he wanted to. Guys like that who, again, just graduated from high school, these new faces, you know? Believe it or not, I think debut fighters sell more tickets than most veteran fighters who are locally known in the sport. Because, you know, you, how many people do you know will go, hey, man, Jake's fighting. Let's go watch him, right? man. Let's yeah. go watch you know, You might sell a crap ton of tickets just because it's your first fight and everyone's like, oh, this is nuts. We want to see him. What's gonna, oh, he's going to get his butt kicked or something. You know, everyone, that's how it is. And yeah, I mean, sometimes you get a, a guy who's been around for, you know, 10 years who doesn't outsell a debut fighter. You know, mm. it, it, it happens. I mean, don't be wrong, there are ticket sellers like Lucas Mass. That dude's going to sell. I mean, I think he, 
I think he called my wife up and was like, can I buy all the front row tables? And they're like, no. Like, leave some for other people. I mean, guys like him, he sold like $23,000 worth of tickets just to him wow. when he made his pro debut in Millersburg. Granted, it was Millersburg, but still, he is a ticket seller. And then you get, you know, then you get some guys like then, like Devin Watkins, who comes in making his debut, sells more than everybody else, like the top ticket seller. Yeah, and I was sitting behind Watkins, like a bunch of his tables, a bunch of guys that were supporting him. And not only did a lot of people come and support him, but he gave them a performance to remember. What did you think of a performance out of a guy like that? Oh, I, I loved watching it. I've sparred, I've trained with Devin several times. Uh, it was, it's so nice to watch somebody their progression and improve. And, and, and Devin, they, they just keep giving him fights against tough, tougher guys, like just tough opponents. They're not giving him easy fights. You know, you, his first fight alone was uh, he lost his debut. I can't remember who he fought, but the, I do know that he was a good fighter because I remember seeing the name and I go, ooh, that's a, that's a tough one for him, you know, and we'll see how he does. He was a high school, like, state, I think he was a state qualifying wrestler too. So, well, let's see how he does, and then he ended up losing. And what do they do? They put him up against a, another tough guy. Like you got to earn this victory, and, you know. And they put him up against a guy who had like ten fights. I think it was Quintel Quintel Richards, I believe is his name. And I, and I believe Devin lost that fight. Instead of giving him a, a, a an zero and three guy to try to pad his record a little bit, get some experience, they put him up against the dude he just. That guy was. I think that guy was actually projected to win, and, and I think he was actually winning the fight up to the point where he got <laughs> slept but you love to see it you love to see it right and, and it's great to see that from Devin it really is that kid's got a, a bit a bright future so there's a few of those guys up at victory where they they do have some bright future especially like Nick like Nash yeah I've I've trained with him a lot he was actually one of my main sparring partners for Kyle because they look they're so similar and and size height length all that such a good grappler and he's a cardio machine it's insane so it's gonna I'm, I'm actually curious to see how far he's gonna go in his career so i hope he stays healthy as well yeah that's a guy that i've been eyes on for a long time and a guy that might be on fortune ohio here very soon it's incredible to hear that cage thunder was so close to going under and how the pandemic helped it but right now you know it's better than it ever has been what's in store for the future of cage thunder and how big do you think this promotion can become well, we're gonna this this year is our first true test of how big that this promotion can get. So I'm pretty sure we're trying to book Nautica for August, but Nautica is so hard to get, we may not get it. But it's 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 in talks. We want to try to get Nautica, and then December 2023, we've got the Cant Civic Center, 3,000 seats minimum or like minimum or something like that. Like we gotta get. Like we have to sell that much kind of thing. Like we have to we have to pack that place, and that's going to be like the first true test to see where this promotion stands. You know, because like we're at capacity at the chaperones every single show, mm -hmm. to the point where like we don't know if we're going to get shut down for having too many people in there. I mean, we're well over capacity every single show. They have they have to stop selling tickets at the door, and there's a line, or wrapped around the building. So, moving forward, bigger venues. They're looking to improve their cage, more sponsors, 
We got a new logo, more official logo. And then the production value and the pay-per-view, we're, we're, we're looking to get that. We're starting to, we want to start adding like sponsor commercials and sponsor segments in the pay-per-views. We also want to start adding more titles, tail the tapes. I want to try to get instant replay in there. You know, some programs that we can download and install that are compatible with OBS, which we use for the pay-per-view. Um, there's a lot of options that we have. But yeah, we within three years, I would like to have... I would like to be on UFC Fight Pass. That's where I want. Within three years, I would like for the production value to be there. But right. we'll see. If the if the promotion is willing to invest in me, then I'm going to invest in the promotion, and we're going to try to make it work. Yeah, I'm excited to see what Cage Thunder becomes one day. And like you said, I think it's only going to get better with the production value, but also the fights and the sponsorships and everything that goes in to making a Cage Thunder event what it is. Before we wrap up, Norm, anything or anyone you want to shout out, whether it be fighters at the gym, social media handles, upcoming Cage Thunder events, anything that I didn't touch on that you want to shout out right now? Uh, first of all, let's get the Cage Thunder out of the way. Yeah, April 1st, uh, Chaparral's Akron is our, our first pro-am of the year. Tickets are selling fast, so make sure you get on the website, cagethundermma.com, and get tickets. Support your favorite fighter. Support local MMA. My wife, Jessica, we had just celebrated our 11th year anniversary. So she's always been my my ride or die, my number one supporter. So we'll, we'll show her some love. Uh, Apex Fight Systems, again, located on 3333 Manchester Road. Uh, practice starts at 730, Monday through Friday. And then, uh, and then we spar on Sundays. So if you guys want to come in there and uh, see if you got what it takes, Sunday at 730 p.m. right there in Coventry, get in there and, you know, see if you can be a fighter. And, uh, you know, my coach, Brian Clark, and, you know, Jamar Moore, those guys, everyone at Apex. We got Branson Price, who's fighting Brandon Bilzer, who's mm-hmm. one of the commentators on the show. He's there fighting for the Bantamweight title. So I'm, I'm really excited to see that fight. That's coming up April 1st as well. So Yeah, Cage Thunder 20 is going to be an insane event. Luke McMurtry also fighting on that card. Against Dylan Davenport. That's, yeah. that's going to be a great fight. Yeah, it really is going to be an incredible event. I can't wait to see it in person. Thanks again, Norm, for coming on the show. You're a motivational and inspirational figure in the fight game, and you're full of incredible stories that I'm proud to have spotlighted here on Forge in Ohio. I always end interviews on this podcast by connecting the athlete I'm talking to to the state that we call home. So, OH. I O. Thanks, Norm. Thanks again for the time and for making your way in studio. I appreciate it more than you know. I wish you nothing but the best in retirement from the sport of MMA, and it's going to be fun to see the growth of Cage Thunder over time in the state of Ohio. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Norm the Jackhammer Carrero, the now-retired mixed martial artist who finished his career as a 7-7 amateur fighter. Beyond his record, though, Norm is just a great man with a lot of passion for the fight game. You'll still see him around at Cage Thunder events, and his competing days in other sports are far from over. That's definitely one of the more fascinating guests I've been joined by on Forge in Ohio, and I hope you all enjoyed it just as much as I did. If you want more Forge in Ohio content in your life, then follow the podcast on Instagram at Forge in Ohio and check out the other 18 interviews I have available wherever you get your podcasts. I've been your host, Jake Murren, and thank you for tuning into this edition of Forged in Ohio.